Welcome to the Insight Insight podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing the opioid epidemic. Although the residents and psychiatrists on this podcast are affiliated with various institutions, the views expressed on this podcast do not represent those institutions. This podcast is for learning purposes only and is not to be taken for medical nor psychiatric advice. Your personal doctor is the best person to discuss those issues with. I'm Dr. Gritty. I'm a psychiatry resident at University Hospitals and Case Western in Cleveland, Ohio. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Smith, a psychiatrist who works at the Addiction and Mental Health Board for Summit County. I uh, grew up in uh, the state of Maryland, actually. Went kind of the path of least expense through University of Maryland College Park. Pretty large state school, not quite as big as the Ohio State University. And then uh, University of Maryland Medical School. I did my residency training, a little departure of that, went to the Shepherd Pratt Hospital, which is a private psychiatric institution. I think in my very last year as I was leaving, they were merging their residency with the University of Maryland, actually, which is kind of ironic. But So I helped guide that as the chief resident in my final year, but I wasn't part of that program. I then did a uh, forensic fellowship, that's my other interest, uh, area, which was a joint Johns Hopkins and Maryland uh, program. So really, before I left Maryland, I had exposure to all three big institutions in psychiatry in the Baltimore uh, region, which was great. And then I came to Toledo, Ohio, uh, 1998, because they needed a forensic psychiatrist. They didn't have any. It was a great way to start my career in forensic psychiatry. Gradually moved from the on the units to clinical administration. So I was the medical director at that site. Eventually, I was the medical director for three state hospitals, which were all collectively called North Coast uh, Behavioral Health Care. Did that until six and a half years ago, and then came here to the Summit County. It's the Alcohol, Drug Addiction, Mental Health Services Board, and our name pretty much tells what we do. We fund services, which we have determined. We have a small clinical staff. I'm the only psychiatrist. We do have a psychologist and a lot of uh, several social workers, one LPCC. Our director is actually a social worker who's come up through the ranks. He does a great job. And then we have a whole team, of course, with fiscal people and IT people and so forth. And so we fund services that we think will help the public in Summit County. And then we evaluate. The reason we need a clinical team is also to evaluate, are we getting good outcomes for the money we're spending? So we focus mostly on funding evidence-based practices where we can, uh, which weren't really around even when I was in training. We didn't talk about evidence-based practices at that point, and I'm not that old, but uh, so now we're funding evidence-based practices, and uh, that has included uh, our work with the opiate epidemic. Can you talk a little bit about your work with advocacy? Starting in Toledo, I was exposed to the local, two groups actually, they had a, a local national alliance on mental illness uh, group, as well as a Mental Health America group, and I think in over time, the NAMI group had a little more uh, resources and more involved people. So they would come to the state hospital and they would actually have a meeting with uh, individuals who are at the state hospital, the parents or family members of individuals at what we call North Coast Toledo Campus. Today it's called Northwest Ohio Psychiatric Hospital. And they had the meetings and they would invite others to come in and talk to the family members and educate them about, gee, what is going on here with my loved one? And many of the the, uh, men and women, often mothers and fathers, sometimes brothers and sisters, of the individuals who had been at the state hospital for treatment actually kept coming even when their loved ones were out and doing well in the community. 
And it, I learned from that that there was a lot that could be done to educate family members, which then, of course, helps the individuals we're trying to help uh, get treatment and uh, move into their own recovery from mental illness or addiction or both. Uh, so that was around my start with that. And then uh, in my role here at the, uh, and I did see some of that as well from NAMI when I was at North Coast. In my role at the ADM board, I was asked if I was interested in working with the National Alliance on Mental Illness for Ohio. And so for several years, I've done that. Uh, Dr. Steve Jewell was in the role prior to me, and I think his, in effect, his term expired. And they were looking, and we talked about it. And he's a great advocate in uh, psychiatry around the state and beyond. So I said, well, it's a good idea. Let me try it. And it's been excellent. Seeing it from the, truly from the viewpoint of the family members of those we treat often, often it's really the family members of individuals with more serious mental illness, even serious and persistent mental illness, that feel the real strong pull to, ad, to be advocates. And so the board that I sit on there is myself. Uh, we have a child psychiatrist. We have two agency directors. And the remainder of the people, although could be some overlap with the four of us as well, are uh, family members of individuals with mental illness, maybe addiction, but NAMI focuses really on mental illness. And we work to advocate uh, at uh, the state level about how do we help our loved ones get the care they need. Terry Russell has been the uh, NAMI president, while a director while I've been there, so he's excellent. And in fact, to give you a sense of how important advocacy is, when the two gubernatorial, I guess is the word, people were running against each other trying to figure out who's going to become the governor, the, they actually each called Terry Russell from NAMI, Ohio, to sit down and talk about their thoughts about what they would do for individuals with mental illness. So he didn't have to seek them out anymore. He's done such a good job. Obviously, the board that I'm on helps with that, but he's really the, the face plus several staff uh, who work with him at NAMI, Ohio. And it shows you the power of that. So they're able to sit down, and now, now Governor Mike DeWine is, uh, has created a group of individuals called Recovery Ohio to uh, sit and really give him guidance on the budget. One of the individuals that had to be there, and they asked him, and he is on that, is Terry Russell from NAMI, Ohio. So that says a lot about how important advocacy is, even to those in leadership roles who are able to determine how the monies flow, where do we prioritize. And uh, again, today's topic is timely because Governor DeWine is interested in the opioid epidemic as part of that initiative. So you started in this position about six years ago. Uh, correct. Yep. Almost seven now. Almost seven years ago. So that was sort of when the opioid epidemic was coming into public consciousness. Um, what's been your experience before and during starting this position with the opioid epidemic and how it's progressed? So, you know, in retrospect, in you know, hindsight, they say is 2020, when I was still at North Coast, and I'm, I'm going to say this was probably 2006, 7, 8, somewhere in there, I can't really pinpoint it in, in my mind at the moment, we had a number of physicians as we admitted individuals at North Coast who came to me and said, my gosh, I admitted another person who came in on opiates. And we couldn't just stop them. So we were always in the mode, oh, we got we to gotta do some treatment. We weren't the experts at treating that, that was not what the state hospitals were designed for, even though we had and then have embraced the IDDT model, integrated dual disorder treatment for addiction. And so I asked our head pharmacist to run a report and see what was going on with the opiates. And I think in retrospect, we probably identified a location of pill mills in uh, Painesville, Ohio. 
because it turned out that 78%, I still remember because it was so shocking, 78% of our opiate dispensing at the state hospital, which was all internal, there was nobody was sent home with them, but our internal dispensing were for individuals from Lake County, where Painesville is. And at the time, I did reach out to their executive director, uh, Linda Frazier. I think she's actually still a director. She, she, of course, couldn't give me names, but she found zip codes. And there were people driving from as far away as Florida to go to Painesville to get their opiates. So in retrospect, it probably had started before it was in my consciousness and still wasn't based on that. I did then interact with the emergency departments where those individuals were coming from and sometimes starting their opiates to try to push back on that. Because it was at the time, it seemed like an enigma. Oh wow, it's one place. It's like one major ER. Let's work with them. Let's see if we can help avoid needless addiction. Fast forward to becoming the board uh, in uh, May of 2012, Summit County ADM board. Yet year, not so much in Summit County. There wasn't a lot of published consciousness there. Although in that same year, there was a conference in Columbus that was focused on uh, the. Uh, the growing conscious awareness, I guess, of the opiate problem wasn't being called an epidemic yet. And uh, Orman Hall, who at the time was the director of ODATIS, uh, before the two departments merged, uh, he was part of that conference, uh, you know, and they were talking about this. And that really is where we know things had started in the southern part of the state. So being North Coast behavioral healthcare, I saw the northern part of the state. But a lot of this stems around Portsmouth, Scioto County, it's part of the subject of Dreamland, which is a book about the genesis of the opiate epidemic. And unfortunately, Dreamland was a location in southern Ohio, uh, in that Portsmouth area. So it tells you that even an outside reporter from Los Angeles discovered the opiate epidemic and discovered it was in Ohio, uh, as well as West Virginia and some of our surrounding areas, kind of, you know, kind of this part of the heartland of America, you'd say. So certainly by early 2013, we were much more aware here in Summit County that there was a growing opiate problem. Dr. Lisa Kohler is our uh, medical examiner. She and her team are excellent. So she and I started talking, what's going on? She was seeing more uh, overdose deaths related to opiates. At the time, pills being a reasonable proportion of those, but also some heroin. So we started doing things about it. We funded and launched, uh, helped launch three Suboxone projects, uh, three different agencies here, so about a third of a million each to really get that out and get that going. We didn't have that at all. That was not a known thing. And, you know, we are Akron. That's part of Summit County. So Akron is the birthplace of Alcoholics Anonymous. Our area is very much about abstinence-based treatment. And that's been a bit of an uphill battle in some places because that has worked for many people. So I don't take that away from anybody. But our evidence-based practice, coming back to that point I made earlier, there's a lot of evidence that medication-assisted treatment, MAT, is a valuable approach. And so we've really been promoting and funding what's a good way to promote MAT. What do you say to people who say that MAT, medication-assisted treatment, is substituting one drug for another? So I think if we are able to have a good discussion about the brain and about what we know from uh, the research, again, evidence-based, we know that, and unfortunately so far there's no blood test to predict who, but we know that there are certain individuals whose uh, brain reward pathway, it's more the animal part of our brain. It's not that the frontal lobes that you and I are using to think this through as we're talking. So th that animal part of the brain, which includes limbic system and other parts of the brain, the reward pathway, some people take an opiate 
and it turns it on more than it does for other people. And we don't know that in advance usually. So what happens is the person takes the opiate and many of this has been very innocent. So I'll use a simple example that, you know, this, you know, maybe it's a junior in high school, a female athlete, she sprains her ankle, but it's pretty bad. She goes in to get help, whether it's the ER or her family physician, pediatrician, maybe. And there was a period of time in my, when I was being educated, you know, we were told, well, you don't use opiates for that, right? That would be rest, ice, elevation, maybe some ibuprofen. A week later, you still got pain, maybe some heat, right? So that was the kind of the standard treatment. That changed starting in probably about 1996, but the upswing really from 1999 onward, where there was a lot of background promoting that doctors had been undertreating pain. And that led to this same young person now being given opiates. And so she, she's given opiates, and let's imagine that's happening for thousands of people. It wasn't just one. And because of that, we, of course, discovered more of those brains that were already out there whose reward pathway got turned on by the opiates. And what then happens is the, in effect, you know, we are, we're long, long-winded answer, but I have to give you kind of the whole backdrop. So, you know, we are, we're designed, the animal part of us is designed with certain drives. And that's for self-survival and survival of the species, right? So we have to eat and drink, get strong drives for that. We have to have uh, sex to pro- procreate the species, right? So those are drives that are built into us. And what happens when somebody gets an opiate and it turns on that reward pathway so strongly is that drive actually can become the top drive. It actually supplants the drive to eat, the drive to drink, the drive to have sex. They may unfortunately trade sex for the drug as a means of getting the drug, but it's not because they're driven by the sex anymore. So that you now supplant that and it really, what we seem to see from the research is that drive now fools our frontal lobes into believing that you literally need the drug to survive. I use the analogy, imagine that you were in the desert and you're starving and your choice is to maybe up to this point you've been a vegetarian by choice and then you, you've got to kill an animal to live. You will do it. At that point, you will do it. The survival instinct will kick in so strongly, it doesn't matter what your beliefs are, ideologies are, what have you, you're going to do that to survive. And the same thing is what happens with addiction. So now that individual will lie, steal, cheat, sell the parents' TV set, whatever they need to do, because they really believe, in effect, that they're starving. They're starving for the opiate, because the opiate turns on through uh, through the dopamine pathways turns on that reward system, and they've got to have it to survive. When I talk to patients, consumers, if you will, you know, sometimes I'll use an eating analogy, dieting. So American condition, almost all of us in America have tried to diet at one time or another. It's not that successful. And the reason is that for, is there's two reasons, and it matches the opioid epidemic perfectly. One of those is that once we start to not eat, our brain through chemicals and so forth, hormones and other things, starts screaming at us, feed me, feed me, feed me. And you can't ultimately avoid that. You will ultimately eat. It's really hard to change, a, change your diet up entirely. You're not going to be very functional if you have to walk around and consciously keep thinking, I can't eat, I can't eat, I can't eat. And meanwhile, you've got your chemicals and, and therefore your brain screaming at you, you must eat, you must eat, you must eat. So that's number one. 
Number two is we live in a smorgasbord, right? So you walk past your colleague's desk and there's candy. It was just Valentine's Day yesterday, right? There's candy in people's desks. There, we, somebody brought donuts in yesterday here. It's there. And even if you aren't having your brain scream at you to eat, we know that there's a reward in eating. We enjoy eating. So again, we come back to that. There's this reward, reward piece, and then there's this piece screaming at you that you must have it to survive. And in combination, you lose that battle usually. Same thing with addiction, right? The person's brain that happens, not their fault, it's an illness. The person's brain that happens to be uh, turned on so much by an opiate, again, innocently maybe got an opiate because they sprained their ankle, uh, they start looking for more. And they get it out of their grandmother's cabinet, and they get it out of the neighbor's cabinet, and then if need be, they try to find money to buy it from somebody they they know at school or wherever is selling it. And sadly, eventually, they may move to heroin because nowadays it's cheaper, easy to get, more potent. And the sad fact is that's you know people can die from pill overdoses. They certainly can die from a heroin overdose, and it doesn't mean they're trying to die. There may be some overlap there with suicidality, which we've not been able to tease apart as a nation, let alone a county. But then you add to that that the individual selling the heroin may add fentanyl to it, 50 to 100 times more potent, depending on the analog of it, easy to take too much. And then it's in Akron, back in uh, July 4th of 2016, thereabouts, we were hit with carfentanil, which is the elephant tranquilizer. And I say that for reasons, coming back to this point. You and I, without an addiction, we hear that somebody is selling carfentanil, we hear that people are dying, we would run away from that person. The person with the addiction, we heard this widely in the Summit County area, which was really a struggle for us to, to push back with some public service announcement stuff through the media. The people with the addiction, their brain, again, their frontal lobes aren't functioning fully. They think, my gosh, that's the good stuff. I'm going to get some, but I'll be careful. Well, you can't be careful with carfentanil. You know, a grain of salt size is enough to kill a human. So how careful can you be? So when I talk to individuals, I'll go, come back to your original question about MAT, is we need to be able to help quiet the screaming, feed me, feed me, feed me. That can take months. Some studies say 18 months. We can allow those frontal lobes to take over again and be in charge so that our, if you will, our executive, executive function, we say, is now in charge, and we can now make better life decisions. We can move forward. We, it's very hard to do that, just like dieting. I dare anybody who's on a diet to constantly avoid the candy around where they are, and just like that, the opiates are everywhere now, right? There's drug dealers everywhere, and so forth. So that, that's usually what I'll, shorter version, but I'll explain that to somebody about MAT, that our job, we're trying to help quell that screaming, and usually with enough discussion, they'll get to that, oh, yeah, you're right, that is what's happening. Because the definition of addiction is you spend your time thinking about obtaining and or using the drug. That's, that becomes your pattern. That is your day and night because heroin doesn't last that long. So people are using it multiple times a day. And we need to figure out a way to, to help their brains be satisfied enough and give them back control of the executive function so they can now take charge of their own recovery. And that's why it's medication-assisted treatment. It's the T part, the treatment part, that is so important. And this is not, we got into this problem partly because we want a pill to fix it like yesterday, whether it's a sprained ankle or terrible cancer pain. 
but we also don't want to, we can't solve it the same way. It's not like, oh, here's a pill you're cured. We're not, no one's arguing that. We're saying, here's your buprenorphine or uh, your naltrexone or whatever treatment we want to give you that your choice. It's going to help quell your brain screaming at you, but you've got to do all this other group and individual therapy and other skill building and so forth to beat the illness because it's an illness. So it sounds like you're saying that people who are on medication-assisted treatment are different and they act differently than people who are on drugs like heroin. Very different. The medication-assisted treatments, three, three main ones, are, which I've mentioned by generic, I'll say, I'll, I can say brands, I guess, once. <laughs> so, so Vivitrol, uh, the naltrexone blocks the receptor and you actually can't get high. The studies now show it's just as effective as giving buprenorphine, which actually partly turns on and partly blocks the receptor, but it doesn't make you high. Neither of those are going to make you high, and the net result is you can now think clearly, which you weren't thinking clearly if you're using heroin, fentanyl, other opiate pills, and methadone is the other one, and methadone's been around for a long time. It got stigmatized because it originally came out of the first opiate epidemic in the 60s and 70s, and people were pretty stigmatized. People thought that, oh, that was only down and out people living in the gutter. And it didn't affect the whole populace the way the current epidemic has. So I think even people now still think differently about that epidemic. But the truth is, the methadone seems to help, again, it turns on, but seems to quell the screaming. And it's been shown that people are very functional. If you get the right dose, so you're not making them high, you're giving them back their executive function so they can think clearly. So they're very different than if they're taking the heroin. And these are longer acting. So we're giving them something that we know they'll be good at least for the day. Now, Trexone, a month, if you do the injectable version. There is a, Revia was the original uh, brand name for the daily pill. And they do make that generically for now, Trexone. So you could choose to do that, but now that's a conscious effort every day to take the pill. Most individuals that are ready for recovery will, if you give them the choice of all of those, do you prefer methadone? We would do the same discussion. Give me informed consent. You've got abstinence, or you've got naltrexone, or you've got methadone, et cetera, or buprenorphine, and let them have a choice of what they think would match, and then some of that's trial and error. Give them back their executive function, but with the understanding that they're going to be in the treatment side. And that that's going to be certainly ongoing and probably lifelong, like any other addiction. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned this a little bit, but what were all the factors that allowed this opioid epidemic to come into existence and affect our lives in such a way? Sure. So there, there are myriad ones. And in fact, I've got a, a slide set here. I'll refer to one slide that I've got that's got a bunch. I think it actually probably came originally from the... Uh, Ohio Department of Health, which has done great work uh, as part of the giant team. You know, this has really been a situation that is the old, it takes a village adage. This is accurate. I mean, you know, if you talk to the various branches of government and the subdivision, so the executive branch, the police flow from the executive branch, you can't arrest your way out of this. This is not just about arresting people either for using or for selling. Certainly, we want to go after people that are selling. We'd rather give treatment to people who are using, but that alone doesn't solve it. We need to shut off the supply and so forth. So one of the issues was, and I, I mentioned it a little bit before, uh, was that there was a pressure put on physicians, and, and now nurse practitioners, but at the time the main prescribers were physicians, 
there was pressure put on physicians that we were undertreating pain. You're, we're not, you know, we, we, we go into this, this profession to help people. And, and genuinely, I think people who go, who go into healthcare, they really do want to help people and we don't want to hurt anybody. So we try to help them. And again, in my day, we, we were told basic stuff, rest, ice, elevation, for the, from using the sprained ankle, certainly for cancer pain, kidney stone pain, childbirth, things that are, we need to treat, we treat them, we were treating them with opiates then. Clearly, there is a role for opiates and even high-potency opiates at times. What changed was we started giving out, with a lot of pressure, more and more, particularly Percocet and Vicodin, but basically, you know, the oxycodone and hydrocodone and all the, all the versions of those, we were giving those out more generously. And it really, I think that, you know, if you see the charts, they almost always start around 1999. So the pressure was building in the late 90s, before 1999, actually. But the pressure was building... And the net result is you started hearing that doctors should prescribe more. Not only that, eventually there was this concept of pain is the fifth vital sign. And, you know, blood pressure, pulse, pain, a vital sign. And the only way I've been able to figure out pain is a vital sign is that if you're in pain, you know you're alive, right? So that's, other than that, it's not a vital sign. But that was the, that was the phrase. And that concept got picked up even by the Joint Commission used to be JCAHO, now they just say the Joint Commission. And the Joint Commission accredits many inpatient and outpatient facilities, including in Ohio, the state hospitals. So even at North Coast, when somebody came in, we began having to ask them about pain. Now, people were not coming to North Coast for pain treatment, ever, quite frankly, but we would ask them, well, imagine asking a person with an addiction to opiates if you have pain. Well, of course they have pain, because their brain, again, being tricked by that animal part of the brain, that has the disease of addiction, yeah, I have some pain. Well, what's your pain level? So we'd have to ask the pain level on a scale from zero to 10. If they couldn't really communicate with us, we would use what's called the FLACC, which is smiley faces through grimace faces, right? So some way to communicate. That's how important it was. So important, we even had to have ways of measuring this in the state hospital, let alone everywhere else. But my, my vantage point at the time was the state hospital when this all was hitting. And the net result was, we would ask you, and then we, oh, we better give you some treatment, right? Well, of course, initially we would try ibuprofen or Tylenol, but sometimes maybe they needed an opiate. Not too often at state hospital, but it could happen. And then we have to go back. Usually, a nurse would go back and ask an hour later how that worked for you. Well, again, the person without an addiction, if they really were in that pain, would be like, I'm okay. And really, in North Coast, if we had somebody that kind of pain that needed a Percocet, they probably need to go to the ER. We probably need to get other experts involved in their pain control, because that's not why they came to us. But that's how almost farcical it became. And so the people with the addiction could drive, which is the only illness I know of, where they could drive their treatment in, against a physician's better judgment. He or she is saying, no, you know, I, I don't think this is the right thing. But they're saying, but I'm still at a five, doctor. And the next thing you know, you're giving out. Another factor to take that to another level became patient satisfaction surveys. Now, that's a great tool that did not exist much that I remember when I was in residency, but it's a great tool because we do want to have better care. We're, we're always looking at the, the triple aim now, and in fact, from our perspective now, the quadruple aim, so that we also get satisfaction from what we're doing. And so part of that is, you know, better outcomes, better satisfaction. And those scores in some places, 
were actually being used then to determine a proportion of a physician's income. So if you're working somewhere where the patient satisfaction scale affects, let's even just say 10% of your income, just to use a number, and I, my better judgment is, no, I'm not giving out all these opiates. I, did, I, I was trained, I'm not doing this, but I keep getting low scores from all the people who have addiction, and I notice my colleagues are giving them out, and I'm losing pay. Human nature is that many of those physicians started giving out opiates anyway. And so there, that was one big factor. Another big factor that most people don't realize, because we live in one bubble, we live in the United States, best place on earth to live, but it has some flaws. One of them is direct-to-consumer marketing. Most people don't realize we are one of only two countries in the entire world that allow ads on TV and in our news magazines and other magazines and, and the radio on drugs. Any ever, every other country, all the marketing is done to the prescribers. And its attempt, the attempt certainly is more educational. Now what happens is patients come to us and they see somebody looking like, oh, here they had pain. Oh, they just got there. I'll, I'll use Vicodin as an example. And look how great they are now. And so they come into our offices saying, hey, doctor, I just heard about Vicodin and I'd like some Vicodin. And that's a much different dialogue than if I'm the only one holding the knowledge, like most countries, and I can now say, let me tell you about what's out there, as opposed to everybody's heard the ad, which is, of course, designed to make it sound great, even when they changed the law and added in the disclaimers that we all hear now, because initially there weren't those. They did a balance, it's a better balance, with disclaimers about all the side effects and sometimes up to including death and so forth. But meanwhile, most people in today's world mute those ads, but they still see the wonderful scenery of of the person having a great life. Running through a field. Running through a field. My favorite is one, I I really, I laugh out loud, it's a person, a man who's clearly old, clearly elderly, chasing probably his great-grandchild, in theory, around like a field. I don't remember what the drug is, I think it's probably for arthritis or something. But I laugh because... I, my, my knowledge of the world is I'm sure they probably screened 100 people who looked that old to find one who can even walk fast enough that they could speed up the film to make it look like he was chasing the kid. has nothing to do with the truck, right? But it's a great image. And in fact, if you were to mute that ad, all you would see is this elderly man loving life with his great-grandchild. Well, who wouldn't want that? We all want that, right? So I hope when I'm 92, I'm chasing my great-grandchildren around without any pain. So... That direct consumer marketing, that, by the way, the other country is New Zealand, because your listeners are now going, what's the other country? So, <laughs> so New Zealand's the other country. So uh, and I don't know enough about what's going on there, but I don't doubt that that drives certain other problems when everyone knows that. The other thing that has happened over time, and we're probably seeing, going to see this even more sadly, in my perspective, with medical marijuana, whatever that really means, is that as people perceive that drugs are not bad, and that certainly was the message that was being sent about opiates for a number of years until the more recent years. Opiates are good, there's no problem with them, maybe they're not really addictive like we used to think, like I was trained, and so forth, and so it drops that barrier to trying something. You know, So you're, most people won't try something when it's illegal, you still get a certain group that will, but once you say, yeah, but it's really good for you, right? Oh, yeah, everyone's, everyone's taking this stuff now. And in fact, when you look at the statistics, the United States uses, depending on the study you look at, between 80 
and 99% of the world's Vicodin and Percocet, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing. And we are not even 5% of the world population. And we're, we are Painesville, using that to be funny. But we are kind of the Painesville of the world, right? What's going on in America? I do. I'm very patriotic. We are the best country in the world to live in. But there's something going on. And you're right to ask the factors. And we don't know all the factors, I don't think. I'm just covering some of them in your, given your time window here. But those are a lot of the big ones. And the other one probably in, in the final analysis is we really are, because we're the wealthiest country in the world per capita, doesn't mean everyone's living well. But by and large, we're living well. So comedians can make jokes in this country about a husband and a wife fighting over one degree on the thermostat. And we quickly forget that most people in the world don't even have a thermostat. That's a tough concept. So we, at some level, feel entitled to no discomfort. And no pain is part of no discomfort. And yet, logically speaking, if you're thinking with our frontal lobes, we kind of know that as we get older, we're probably going to have some aches and pains, sometimes worse than minor aches and pains. And there maybe at some point we'll need treatment for some of that, but probably not every time we have a sore ankle because we squatted too much in the garden, pulling the weeds or what have you, do we need to run to an opiate? And so I think that's another factor that it's, it's a tough one to wrap our minds around because it's really a cultural issue in, in the United States, I think, different than most other countries. And that's going to be it for part one of our discussion on the opioid epidemic. I'd like to thank you all for listening to the Insight Insight podcast. If you have questions or comments, feel free to email us at insightinsight at gmail.com please consider reviewing us on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. Special thanks to Dr. Smith for speaking with us today to help us all gain more insight into psychiatry. Stay tuned next week for the second half of this conversation.